You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. How can you be sure that the doctors who want your organs will know you are dead enough? Asked Pauline Chen's mother. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Dr. Pauline Chen, a transplant surgeon and author of the article, Dead Enough? The Paradox of Brain Death, and the book, Final Exam, A Surgeon's Reflection on Mortality. Dr. Chen, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. Why did your mother ask you that question? I think my mother had a lot of the fears that other people have when it comes to brain death and organ donation. You know, it's interesting because as the number of patients waiting for organs has increased, the number of people who have donated have not, um, or not in in the same proportion. And much of that is, is due to misunderstandings about brain death, about the whole process. And while now I think my mother understands better, since her daughter is a transplant surgeon, I think there are a lot of people out there when I speak to them that feel uncomfortable about the whole idea. At that time, how did you respond to her? I was in medical school, and I had just enough knowledge to know that I didn't really understand. (laughs) And so I I kind of said to her, oh, well, Mom, they know what to do. They know what they're doing. But now, having operated on the brain dead, having procured organs, having transplanted, and having seen the system at work close up, you know, my answer would be different to her. And what I would tell her now is that she should not be worried, that it is a well-defined entity. It's a diagnosis that can be easily replicated in experienced hands, that I've checked off the organ donor box and everyone around me knows that that is what I want to do. The potential of giving life when you have passed away with organ donation is really unbelievable. And I think anybody, any physician, any person who has seen some of the cases that we deal with, um, patients who are waiting on the list, who are on the brink of death, um, to see them come back and have a full life, to see them come back to our clinics after their operations, you know, a couple months out, and to not recognize them because they look like any one of us is really, um, it's thrilling, it's amazing, it's a real gift that all of us can give. How has the definition of brain death evolved? You know, it was interesting because when Christian Barnard did the first heart transplant, at the time the definition was not really clear to everybody. And if you look at newspapers and magazine articles from the time, there really is a sense of fear that doctors, particularly surgeons who do transplants, will be sort of like lurking in the emergency rooms waiting for automobile accident victims to come in so that they can grab their organs before they're really dead. But over the course of time, um, there have been multiple discussions, conferences, papers, forums to discuss the definition of brain death. And the one that we have in place now has been around for quite a while. And one of the things that I think most specifically brings it to sort of a comfort zone for, for me, just if you if you were to think beyond the 
scientific and medical explanations. You know, I'm a very visual person, and so I spoke when I was writing the article to Dr. Harry Venters, who's a neuropathologist at UCLA, the head of neuropathology, and he's done at least 100 autopsies on the brain dead. And once they are defined as brain dead, their brains are, are dead. So he's had to do autopsies on patients. And one thing that he said to me during the course of our interview, which really struck me, was that with some families, it's very difficult for them to let go. And, and that really was the thrust of this article, that we keep patients seemingly alive for so long, or we have this ability that it's very difficult for families to realize that their family members are, in fact, dead. I mean, I tried to put myself in their place, and it's very, very difficult. I, I don't know if I would be able to do it as easily as I say right now, you know, not in that situation. Anyway, he said that when families wait to disconnect their patients from life support systems, um, let's say they wait a couple of weeks because, you know, you always get the sense when you see these patients that, you know, maybe if you just press the right button, the person would wake up or that they're really just sleeping. But in those cases where patients have been on life support system for several weeks after the declaration of brain death, these patients, when you do autopsies, their brains are like soup, and that's exactly the analogy he met, met, said, used. They're like soup and that you find parts of their cerebellum down in their spinal cord area. I mean, it's just, it was a very vivid example, I think, of, of how difficult it is that these patients are dead, but that they seem so alive. But it's, it's sort of a false thing that we've got going by using those life support machines. On the other hand, those things are very important in terms of organ procurement. We do need to keep the blood flowing and the oxygenation going, you know, until we procure the organs to decrease the, the chances of the kind of decay that can occur once you stop all those life support systems. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Pauline Chen, discussing her article, Dead Enough? The Paradox of Brain Death. Dr. Chen, you write in your article that since the inception of the Uniform Determination of Death Act, diagnosing brain death has become relatively straightforward based on three criteria— And for experienced physicians, it's possible to diagnose brain death with unfailing accuracy. What are the three criteria? The three criteria are, first of all, that the patient's comatose state cannot be attributable in any way to some reversible condition, such as hypothermia. The second criteria is that the brainstem reflexes are no longer intact, that they are gone. And then the third is that if the patient is disconnected from the breathing machine, from the ventilator, that there are corresponding elevations in CO2 so that the patient doesn't have the drive to breathe. So those three criteria are reproducible consistently inexperienced hands. You write that you have to admit that despite all you know about brain death, you still have moments of uncertainty and doubt. What do you mean? It's interesting. I think that this piece that I wrote came from my experience in procuring organs and hearing the stories of the families and the last moments of 
of life of these patients um, that had donated their bodies. You know, I remember one night, Susan, if I may tell a story, that I was was procuring the organs of a child, a young boy, and by the time I had arrived in the hospital, the boy was completely covered up. So really all that I saw was in the chart, and one of the things that we had to do as transplant surgeons on harvest was to double-check in the chart that the brain death had been declared by two separate doctors. And so I looked through the chart and, you know, this child was brain dead. And and I went about doing my job, which was procuring his organs, the child's organs. I turned around to leave, but realized that I still needed to do a little bit of paperwork, you know, check blood type or just get some notes to bring back to UCLA where I was working at the time. And when I went back into the room, the nurses had uncovered the donor. What I saw on that table just stopped me in my tracks. I mean, it was a little boy who had bright red hair, who had grass stains on his knees, and who had along his chest the tire marks and gravel embedded into his skin. And when I talked to the nurses about what had happened, um, I actually spoke to a representative from the organ procurement agency who had spoken to the family and talked to the family about donation. I learned that the child had been in a car with his younger sister or with his older sister and his mother, and they had just come back from grocery shopping. The mother brought the groceries in the house, and while she was doing that, the sister went up to the driver's seat and shifted the car out of park and the boy fell out and fell under the wheels of the car. And I heard that story. When I heard that story, all I could think about was what ran through this mother's mind, what ran through her sister's mind. And then to have seen their child in the ICU seemingly alive, because when I first started operating on the boy, he was warm still. You know, his chest was rising up and down like any one of ours would be breathing normally. And I wrote the article because I kept thinking, you know, what is it like for these families to make that unbelievably courageous decision to donate the organs of someone they love after, you know, usually what is a traumatic, sudden change in the person's status? You know, your child goes from one minute being alive to someone's telling you he's dead, and yet he seems so alive. The article came out of that and my interest in you know, how we define brain death and the tension that we have within ourselves, not only as family members, but also as doctors, the tension between the definition of death and the reproducible, consistent definition of death that we have, brain death that we have, and what we see and what we feel, the difficulties we have in grieving and letting someone go. You've said that your work as a transplant surgeon is a lot better and a lot worse than you might imagine. Is this story an example of why you said that? Yes, it is. I mean, the better really has to do with what we can do for our patients, the sort of Lazarean awakenings we can facilitate by transplanting. You know, there I can tell you the story, stories of hundreds of patients who have gone from being comatose on the brink of death, as I said earlier, 
to being very much alive. There was, I mean, one story comes to mind right now. There was a young woman who came in in liver failure right after she delivered her baby and was, she was going to die, but we found a liver in time for her, a liver that matched. And, you know, she came back a few months later and she looked gorgeous with this beautiful baby in her hands. What's worse is the horrible sense, knowledge, that in order to give life, someone else has died. I think all doctors, all nurses, all healthcare professionals feel this anyway, but particularly in transplant, there's a huge amount of respect and admiration for family members, what they go through, particularly those of donors. Dr. Chen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.